Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Running on Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this episode of Running on Emotion, we're tackling a subject that's often glossed over, covered up, and hidden by those that are feeling it. Some do a better job than others of concealing it. Some do a better job than others of confronting it and addressing it, perhaps even overcoming it. We're talking about fear. It can manifest itself in any number of ways. Fear of non-selection, fear of underperformance, of disappointment, of coaches, of expectation, of injury. My guest had to deal with fear at an unfathomably young age as an elite athlete. She was competing at the top level from the age of just nine. By the age of 12, she was a national champion. And all the way through her teens, she was at the summit of her chosen sport in this country. And she began to make serious inroads across the globe. Tennis was her sport and she enjoyed a stellar early career, winning both Junior Wimbledon and the Australian Open Junior title in 1984, reaching a career-high world ranking of 24 when she was only 19. Yet by the time she'd reached 21, she'd been forced to retire from the sport, at times terrified on court and unhappy and lonely off it. I'm very happy to say that she's gone on to carve out a fantastic career in the media as a tennis presenter, commentator and pundit. And I'm thrilled to be able to welcome her here today, someone I've worked with a lot over the last 15 years or so, now extremely happy and not remotely lonely, <laughs> Annabelle Croft. Oh, thank you. Well, I was uh, <laughs> listening really intently to that intro. Thank you, Alistair. Well, it's lovely to see you. And your story is an extraordinary one. Not many people know about it. Mm. It was a long time ago now, Annabelle, but does that mean that as a result you kind of almost view it as a as a time that happened to someone else? Well, you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, when I do talk about it, it does feel like I'm talking about a completely different person. And I find it almost difficult to think that that was me back then. And even listening to you reading out all of that stuff, it's sort of, it does feel so far away. It's very strange when I look back on it all. It's very odd. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like imagine. a totally different person. Extraordinary. I mean, we'll get into the mechanics of, of fear, how it affected you in a moment. But would you say overall that emotion, all emotions, played a, a significant role in your career? Yeah, I really would. I think I was a deep thinker and I sometimes overthought absolutely everything. But I was quite an emotional person. And so I sort of took on board emotionally everything that was going on on the court. And that included 
you know, reading body language of somebody else, which you learn to do as an athlete anyway. I'm sure every athlete in any sport would probably sit here and say the same thing. You you become really expert at it. But I wasn't so expert at understanding my own emotions and I didn't quite know how to deal with it all. And going from juniors into seniors and then into big stadiums and in front of big crowds, I wasn't really that equipped for it. And used to just sort of... Um, yeah, freeze up and then go into myself, but also worry terribly about what everyone was thinking of me and listening intently to all the sort of groans and oohs and ahs and tutting and all of that became very magnified. And just being free from that seemed to be impossible. Now, obviously, with most of my guests, I ask about their background and their childhood kind of as a character Mm. pointer, really, to their elite sporting experience. But in your case... Your childhood effectively was your elite sporting experience. Yes, it was actually. I mean, I I was a child who was very, very active. My parents used to say I used to exhaust every child that ever came (laughs) to the house to play with me. And I just needed to be running around and getting rid of all this excess energy. And I was somebody that, you know, I loved life. I loved everything. And I loved friends as well. I loved people. And I did a lot of ballet from a, a very early age, from the age of four till I was 12. I used to ride every weekend, wanted to have a horse. I loved animals had guinea pigs and rabbits and what have you. And then it was discovering tennis at the age of nine that kind of put everything else into a corner. And I discovered it on a family holiday. And once I'd picked up a racket, then I had to choose what I wanted to do. My parents actually did ask me to choose. And it's weird how when I sit here now and I look back and reflect on everything, I almost kind of think, well, actually, I'd quite like to have kept up a couple of the things that I gave by the wayside. I kind of probably would have enjoyed it and... And it would have made me happier. But, you know, that's the way it was. And I wanted to give up. I wanted to sort of focus on my tennis. But, you know, as a much older person, hopefully a much wiser person, you kind of think, "Mm, if I was advising a young child again, I would say, actually, you know, quite important to keep up some other things. Presumably there was a joy of tennis initially when you picked up that racket and then recognised that in actual fact, you're pretty useful. Yeah, I mean, when I think back to some of the early group tennis sessions that I used to go to that cost 50p (laughs) and uh, were boys and girls, and I was at an all-girls school, so to be mixing with boys who had great sense of humour and used to banter quite a bit, I used to think it was great fun and I had a wonderful teacher who had a terrific sense of humour and there was a lot of joy. I used to get enormous joy from just hitting the ball and feeling like I was quite good at it and what I could do with the ball, you know, when you're playing and experimenting. And I don't know whether it came easily to me, but I just loved it. But I also loved the game and I loved the sport. And when we used to watch Wimbledon as a very early child and remembering, you know, Jimmy Connors and Ken Rosewall and Chris Everett, who I later played at Wimbledon, and Bjorn Borg was such a huge icon, you know, and a very big inspiration to me. You know, I I think I just loved the whole thing and I just wanted to be a part of it. So, yes, if I look back, there was a lot of early joy in it, which sadly sort of turned in a different direction sort of as, as I started to play professionally. Would you say that you were fearless as a youngster or, or were you prone to a little bit of self-doubt as a child? Yeah, that's a really good question. I was very shy as a child and I can remember distinctly when my mum at the age of four took me to the original ballet lessons. I had to be literally prized into the classroom because I was so shy. I didn't want to go into the classroom and be amongst others and start, you know, using my body in front of people. And um And then, you know, even at school to do school plays and stand there reciting things in front of people, it was excruciating for me. And it's so strange now that I sit here and 
that's kind of what I do as a job. It's sort of odd how I overcame all of that. But I would say I found it very difficult, actually, at the start, I think. You know, I think shyness was a big part of my personality. Mm. You've mentioned your parents briefly. Rightly or wrongly, there's a slightly jaundiced view of some of the parents of young tennis players in particular for all the loving balanced ones, and there are lots of them. There do seem to be a disproportionate number of loons out there who are <laughs> quite desperate to see... Particularly in tennis. Well, see their children do well, but also live out their dreams a little bit through their children. What what was your experience of uh, both your own and I guess others as well? Yeah, I mean, I had parents who were incredibly encouraging and I don't believe that any athlete can really get there without a parent that's going to be very encouraging and be able to drop you off at training and ferry you around to all these tournaments and national training and and what have you. Uh, But my mum was more of an intense character. She was an absolute tennis fanatic, I would say, and probably still is to this day. That's what she lives and breathes. My dad was much more chilled out. He loved his tennis. He played very well as well. But I definitely did prefer it when he was there because he didn't sort of display outwardly physical kind of stress watching my tennis matches, whereas my mum was definitely somebody who couldn't hide her emotion attached to watching tennis matches. When I watch young kids today and I try and advise parents or I'm watching young kids, I always say to the parents, you know, you have no idea that your child is watching every single emotion and every single part of your body language that you're you're displaying. And you don't even know that you're doing it yourself. You're better off going to the bar and buying yourself a drink and just coming back later because... That child is very, very tuned in, almost on an animalistic basis. You can't help it. Everything you do, you want to please your parents. And so if you know that what you're doing is going to please them, or if what you're doing is stressing them or upsetting them, you're going to take that on board. And there are quite a few parents out there, aren't there? Again, they may be an exception, but there do seem to be a lot of them in tennis. That There's a sort of system of barracking. They'll be clinging onto the netting. They'll be calling lines. They'll be Ugh. making a menace of themselves. You yeah. would have experienced that, I'm, I'm quite sure. How did you deal with that? Well, I think it's very character building, actually. And I think some kids probably don't deal with it so well. But in a weird way... My dad always brought me up to say, rise above it, don't lower yourself to anybody else's bad behaviour or whatever. So that was always ringing in my head. But certainly in juniors, the parents that were, as you say, slightly nutty, I would say, and I called them the vultures that used to sit on the balcony and just barrack from the sidelines. But what was more horrendous was when you were playing a particular child and that parent of that child would come down your end of the court and stand near the baseline and start barracking from there. You just learn to deal with it. And I'd always find it, it almost gave me strength to think, wow, that's what you have to do to get your child to beat me. And it sort of strengthens your character when you have to deal with that. And I'm sure it still goes on to this day. If you turned up at a junior tournament, you'd see all sorts of horrendous goings on. But I kind of almost gained strength from it. And it's weird how occasionally in life I have bumped into one or two of these kids who never, ever made it onto the tour but maybe became coaches or were still involved in the sport. And you kind of think, wow, and now you're such a lovely, normal, nice person. And my goodness, back then when you think what was going on. Uh, And you also used to witness an awful lot of, um, you know, bad line calling and kind of effectively cheating, I guess. But Mm. it was all brought about by the pressure coming from the parents on one side of the court. They were kind of forcing the issue and probably that child didn't want to do that, but they were actually doing it to please their parents.
Annabelle, you, you were obviously extremely good. You were the British national champion at under 12, under 14, under 16 as well. You were regularly off on ferries, weren't you, to France and Belgium, trips through mm. Europe on Greyhound buses in the States to play in tournaments. It, it all sounds amazing. How was that for you as a kid? Um, I think early on, initially, I was just so excited about travelling. Because, of course, you know, from a, for a 12-year-old to be getting on planes and representing your country, representing Great Britain... And as you say, just every weekend, you know, going somewhere internationally. I remember going to Sweden on one trip and finding it highly amusing because one of the boys in the British team had highlighted the fact that uh, there was a chocolate bar over there called Plop Plop. <laughs> I've never forgotten it. It was really funny. I still laugh about it <laughs> to this day. And, you know, we went to France and Israel and Germany and um, Holland. I remember being sick really badly on the ferry across there to play an international event. So, you know, it was really, really exciting, but intimidating as well, because there was a lot of pressure from a very early age. So those pressure matches of representing your country, let alone representing yourself, was, you know, I look back on it now, I think, wow, that's, that's quite a lot to, to take on board. But that's what my childhood was. Yeah, a huge amount to take on board as a, a young girl. What is your first memory that you have of feeling fearful on a tennis court? I have one particular f like memory that stands out enormously, actually. When I was probably 12 and I was playing in a, a postal tennis event, so that would have been very, very early on, and I just remember hyperventilating on the court, and I'd never experienced that before. You start to panic and you can't breathe, and everything went really straight. My whole body went strange. It was into shock, and it was purely because of the scoreline of what was happening in this match. I had never experienced it. So I would say that was a very big standout moment. I can still picture myself on the court now. And I look back and think, God, isn't that awful? That, <laughs> that's, what, that's what sport can do to you, but it really can. And I guess a lot of it depends on your character. It's whether you can cope with that fear. But in any sporting situation, from the beginning of when you enjoy just kicking a ball or, you know, throwing a rugby ball or picking up a racket and hitting a ball, when you transfer that into a stress level where suddenly your ego is on the line and there is point scoring and suddenly winning and losing, your happiness depends on it, then suddenly the stress it goes stratospheric. So that was my earliest memory of feeling very fearful on the court. And really, in the big picture of life, it really shouldn't feel like that, should it? It's like, well, it's just a game. Why does it feel like that? But that's sport. Yeah. And in that instance, did you recover? Did your game I fall apart? I, well, I think I recovered, but I remember feeling quite shocked by what had happened on the court. But of course, once you've got memory bank of that kind of thing, then it's sort of in the memory bank. And it's it's interesting how it can manifest itself again. So that's why particular matches, and this would be the same in any sport, I would imagine, trying to erase the memory bank is a very difficult thing. So early on in a young athlete's career, particularly, say, for example, in tennis, if you were to lose a rubber in a Davis Cup tie that was best of five sets, but it was a very key rubber and you ended up losing it rather than winning it. That memory is there and it's very, very difficult to overcome it the next time you put are put into a situation that's similar. And I always watch ice skaters, you know, whenever they're trying to make one of those jumps and it's a very difficult jump, but they fall on the ice. I brace myself every time I'm watching an ice skater going for the second or third time in a routine 
because I just sort of think, well, in the memory, how are they going to overcome what they've just done the first time? When I watch a kicker in rugby, I worry for them so much when they're trying to make those kicks because I think, well, if you've just missed one, what's going to happen the next time? Yeah, it's in your head, isn't it? I mm. mean, do you think for you, was the fear a fear of losing? Was it a fear of embarrassing yourself? Was it of having your ego dented? I think it's what all of it? those things. I think um, your ego is on the line in tennis, isn't it? It's a very harsh sport because there isn't anywhere to hide. It's literally you against your opponent. There's an audience there to kind of have a pick at your psyche and see how strong you are. So if you double fault on a big point, then you're exposed. You just look like a weak person that just did that. Your opponent knows you're weak, you're faltering. As an opponent, if you're the other end, you can grab that and, and build on it. So, yeah, I think it's a fear. It was a fear of all of those things. And, um, you know, I've analysed it a lot. I used to buy a lot of self-help books. I used to buy a lot of psychology books and... You know, in those days, there weren't sports psychologists, which I really, really wish that I had been in touch with somebody who was a sports psychologist, because I think these for any athlete today that's listening to this would say, oh, well, you know, I've, I've worked with somebody who can give you exactly the tools to overcome that. But that was something that that wasn't around. I mean, I was sent to, um, well, he was actually a marriage guidance counsellor who was a psychiatrist in Harley Street, but he was the best on offer at the time. And I, <laughs> I learned an awful lot from him, actually. But I was 18 at the time, but I was going to him to help me with my tennis. He was also a hypnotist. So I ended up having a lot of hypnotherapy to try and overcome my fears and um, try to block out what I thought was a terrifying crowd, you know, in a big audience. But I realised that he probably didn't know so much about sport. So as I said, I learned an enormous amount from him. About but, marriage guidance. Well, he didn't really relate it. But no, he, he tried his best to sort of relate it to sport. But I learned about relationships and life, actually, which I still use some of the, the tools that he gave me for that. But as I said, I kind of regret a little bit that sports psychology has become such a big part of professional sport now. And there's not too many athletes, I don't think, at the very top of their game who haven't worked with somebody really good at that level. And... That is something that I really, really would like to... I still would, actually, even now. I have not worked with one now, and I would quite like to, even for my tennis now. And just to be clear, did you make that choice to go and seek that person out, or did somebody um, advise you to do that? Somebody advised me who I was travelling with. He was like a chaperone to me on some international tours that I was doing, and they suggested that I went to see this person. And actually, as I said, it was quite helpful, but there did come a point where... I mean, I was so young. I was 18 and I was writing out the checks every week and then I was trying to earn the money and still pay for these sessions and everything. And then there just came a point, I don't know how many sessions I had. It's so long ago, I can't remember. But um, it was a lot. And I remember thinking, I need to take ownership of this myself. I've got to stop being reliant on somebody else because I could feel myself going down a track of suddenly being sucked into just always being reliant on somebody else. And I felt like I needed to take back control and I could make these decisions because underneath all of this, even though it was extremely helpful, I kind of knew the answers myself. Mm, interesting. Mm. And obviously the nature of the competition, Annabelle, it's combat, as you've described mm. it, mano a mano kind of thing, isn't it? And it's constant. Week in, week out, you are putting yourself on the line. Mm. Would you say that it was kind of cumulatively erosive? <laughs> Of, yeah, that's of, a really good character. term. Yeah, I think that is a really good term, actually. I think it was cumulatively erosive. <laughs> I've never heard that term before, but it's a good one. Because, you know, in tennis, everything depends on your confidence and where you're at. And because the nature of the tour life, 
you go on these long tours where you might go six, seven, eight weeks on the trot, week after week after week. So if you lost in the first round one week, you've got an entire week to practice and be thinking about that loss before you play again. And not everybody's going to win that week. So if there's a draw of 32, 31 are going to lose that week. And if you lose early in the week, you've got even more time to dwell on it and think about it. And as anyone knows, practice is completely different to a match situation. You can never replicate in practice what you're about to face pressure-wise in a match. It all feels completely different. Your whole body feels different. Your emotions feel different. And your adrenaline that's running through your body feels completely different, which is why you feel different the morning after a match compared to a training session. Yeah, I would go on sometimes a, a string of losses and then I'd reach rock bottom and then then I would suddenly feel free because it's like, well, I can't get any worse or I can't feel any worse. And then suddenly you'd feel very released of all that pressure because like, well, I may expect to lose the next one. So actually, let's just go for it and feel free when I'm hitting the ball next time and try and be... Yeah, play with freedom. Mm. And I often hear Roger Federer talking about playing with freedom. I'm interested when he talks about that because I think he often says when he's played his best tennis is when he's played with freedom. And that's a very difficult thing for sports people to find. Most sports people, unless they're in that zone of freedom, it's quite difficult because you're a little bit shackled by what's going on up top in your mind. Of course. But you're all seeking that freedom. And so much depends upon it, doesn't it, at the time, whether that's your family life, your your mortgage, you know, the paychecks that come in. Inevitably, as with all sport, and, and even back then, a lot of analysis... Quite a bit of soul searching, I'm, I'm quite sure, yeah. as to why you were winning, why you were losing, why things were working, why things weren't. And also, I'd love to hear your take on the nature of, of that combat that we've talked about in that on the tour, at that age, everyone's kind of your enemy, mm. right? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were very few friends on the tour because... If you're on a tour, anybody that week is your enemy. And I viewed everybody pretty much as an enemy. I did have a couple of really close girlfriends on the tour who I did make the mistake of, not the mistake, I say mistake, but, you know, I divulged my emotions to them because I'm quite an open person. But then, you know, I faced them the next week. I got drawn against them the next week. I thought, <laughs> how no. ridiculous. They now know what I feel about my entire <laughs> game and where I'm at. But actually, yeah, you know, it was an all-women's tour when I was on the tour, apart from when you met up at the four Grand Slams. So every other woman that was there that week is pretty much your enemy because you need to beat them to be happy. <laughs> Sounds which, awful, which is, doesn't which it? Is, yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary dynamic, that, isn't it? It a, is. A not very healthy one. Well, I think that's what I wrangled with because I think I am quite emotionally in tune as a person and I I love people and I love uh, finding out about people and I want I always wanted to have friends but it was weird for me to be on a tour where you felt like we couldn't really have any because... You're letting your guard down. Yeah, you're letting your guard down. So you don't really want to divulge too much. And as I said, I did a couple of times and it was always unbelievable how I divulged the night before at dinner and then, you know, you draw them the next day. So it was... Um, <laughs> brutal. Yeah, it was a bit brutal. Absolutely brutal. Uh, and what about the media scrutiny, Annabelle? How did that 
affect you? I was on the like the front pages, believe it or not. I mean, I've got old stacks of like front covers of You magazine and Daily Mails, and it wasn't so spread out actually. So if you were in the press and you were on the front pages of newspapers, it was quite a big deal. That probably added to my stress. But I can imagine for the kids now, they're reading comments. Oh, that's even worse. At least I was detached from audiences, but to read yeah. comments from people who were being vile well, and abusive. And social and I, media effectively means you've, you've got people's inbox, really, haven't you? Yes. You've got access to their inbox. If it's I want to send awful. you a vile message, I can. Oh, just really, awful. You never had that. Well, I think some of the players, from what I understand, if the betting people involved and they lose matches because mm. is bet on it and then they've lost their money... I understand that the players get a lot of abuse if they've lost matches when people have lost their bets. So that's a terrible, terrible area to go in. I mean, I really wish some of that wasn't around for. I, I mean, know. it's just Agreed. awful, isn't I know. it? I think it's a terrible thing for everybody to yeah. grow up with, actually, yeah. with kids. Needless to say, you still managed to play some some unbelievable tennis, didn't you? You made the third round of the main draw at Wimbledon in the same year that you won the junior title. What was the key to your success in, in that summer, at least, in 1984, wasn't it? It was strange because I was so excited about playing the seniors that year and I'd won through a couple of rounds. I'd saved a match point in the second round and uh, then I was going to face my idol, Chris Everett, who I'd sort of grown up watching and watching her on TV. I just absolutely idolised her and I thought I would have done anything to have played her at Wimbledon on one of the big show courts. And when I got drawn against her... You know, it was like a dream come true, really. And, you know, I played a, a decent match against her, I would say. It wasn't an absolute whitewash. I enjoyed it. It was out on court one. It was still terrifying. I remember being out there on this big show court. And I certainly didn't disgrace myself. But she was quite clever because my game was built around a big forehand. And she literally did not give me one single forehand for the entire match. But anyway, we had a decent match or whatever. Interesting that you, you still managed to play some, some good tennis there, despite the magnitude of that yeah. occasion. Actually, the fear was diminished to some well, degree. Well, it is, you see, when you're playing against somebody that you're not expected to beat, as every athlete will tell you, the pressure isn't there because you, it's almost like house money. You're playing with more freedom because she has all the pressure on her and really is expected to to beat me very significantly. So for me, that was a very good experience. It was a positive experience to play against her on court one at Wimbledon. So that same year, when I then played the juniors, I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm playing juniors after all the excitement of playing seniors. And I I wasn't really that focused on it, which was weird. And then, of course, as I kept winning, because I was playing with freedom and I didn't really worry about the juniors because I was more excited about having played the seniors... And I kept on winning. And I kept thinking, oh, I wish I could recreate this feeling when I'm out on the tour. But anyway, I just kept on thinking, oh, well, I don't really care about the juniors. I'll just keep playing and, you know, whatever. And um, actually, I I will tell you this. I'm a bit embarrassed to admit it, but the night before the junior Wimbledon final, which was highly unlike my character, but um, Patrick McEnroe, who was John McEnroe's brother, had asked me out to dinner with another friend. So, and I lived in Kent. And in those days, we weren't sort of staying in glamorous hotels five minutes from the courts. I was travelling from Kent, which was about a two-hour journey, to play Wimbledon. Yeah, which is extraordinary when I think about it now. But anyway, I'd sort of agreed to go out to dinner. And I had a wonderful evening. It was great fun. I remember it really well. And then got back in my car and drove to go back to Kent. And I'd left quite early, probably like... I don't know, maybe 10, 30, 11. It was still, I suppose it's sad. You're probably horrified that I'm even telling you this story. <laughs> but the car broke down. 
and it broke down in quite a difficult area, I would say. And then those days, there was no mobile phone. I had to pull over on the side of the road and walk to the nearest pub with some 10p or 2p pieces to phone my parents back in Kent. And my poor dad had to come out and bring a tow rope and tow me all the way home back to Kent. And they were pretty cross, I can imagine. And I would have been the same if it was my child doing this the night before a junior Wimbledon final. To that point, one of the biggest days of your life. Yeah, it was. But as I said, I was in a different place emotionally. It was weird because it really was not my character to do something like that. And anyway, I got to bed really quite late. And I remember just waking up in the morning thinking, oh, my goodness, I better make damn sure I win this match today because I will never, ever hear the end of this, that, you know, I did this to myself and I had to take responsibility for the fact that everything that had happened and breaking down and getting to bed so late and not having the best preparation. And I lost the first set in that final. And, um, oh, my goodness, I was freaking out. but somehow managed to pull myself together and win it. And, um, you know, it's weird how now it's actually one of the proudest moments of my career was winning Junior Wimbledon and having that trophy given to me in the Royal Box by the Duchess of Kent. And it still sits in the trophy cabinet to this day. And so if I take people to the club, I can sort of show them the the trophy. But, oh, gosh, you know, the story behind it was not a good one. <laughs> All that despite the self-sabotage. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that was obviously, a, you know, a big, big moment for you. You won a major title, though, didn't you, in San Diego in 1985. You were you were only 18 at the time. You reached the third round of the US Open 86. You'd beaten some top-ranked players, Wendy Turnbull, Liz Smiley, mm. Katerina Maleva. They were all big names at the time, weren't they? But you, you struggled pretty consistently with the fear. Is that fair to say? I mean, I found an old article, believe it or not, in the LA Times from 1987, oh, wow. Annabelle. Gosh, you've done your research, well, Alice. <laughs> you know, occasionally it comes off, uh, in which you told the reporter you'd been shaking like a leaf on the court. Do you remember that? That was when I beat Wendy Turnbull, I think, in the final. Yeah, I would have been shaking like a leaf. It was a huge um, match for me, that. Because I think that was probably my first win over... I think she was like four in the world or something. I Maybe top ten anyway. But yeah, I would have been shaking like a leaf. And I remember it was a tie break in the second set. And I just remember shaking and trying to control my arms and legs and the fear. But then also thinking, because I'd been on this incredible losing streak before that particular week and I remember just thinking the whole of that week I'm just going to go for it this week because I can't just keep losing the way I'm losing and I need to just change everything and so that whole week I'd played like just going for it and so in the final in that tiebreak I remember thinking I must maintain the same attitude towards this tiebreak because here I can grab this title and um, luckily it all paid off but um yeah, it was probably one of my proudest moments on the tour, definitely. But I would have definitely overcome quite a lot of fear in it. But I remember clearly sort of in my head trying to overcome it. Were you struggling to sleep when when you were f- oh, feeling yeah. like this? Did it affect your physical health in the same way that it was creeping into your mind? Well, I can honestly say to you, sitting here today, that there is not a day that goes by when I don't wake up in the morning and count how many hours sleep I have had since I was a tennis player. And that still relates to my life on the tour. So everything when I was a tennis player related in the morning, like, oh my goodness, have I had enough sleep to be able to play this tennis match today? And it was weird. I think I was talking to Greg Rosetsky about this, and I think he does the same thing. (laughs) I think all tennis players do it. 
But I so wish that I could have not worried about how many hours sleep I had. But the more that you went to bed fretting and worrying about how many hours sleep you would have to be able to play that match the next day, the more you couldn't sleep at night. So definitely there were many nights I'd lie in bed freaking out about the match the next day and worrying about, yeah, have I had enough sleep? Because everybody, I think all athletes want perfection. And they want everything to be perfect before they set into that field or onto the court or wherever it is. So you want everything to be perfect. You don't want anything to get in the way of it. So if you haven't had enough sleep or you, in your own head, think you haven't had enough sleep, then that's going to affect your mental attitude towards the match. So it's weird how even this morning I woke up, I counted how many hours sleep I've wow. had. And it doesn't matter. Why should no. it matter at this age of life? But it still does. It's really weird. It's like a habit. Yeah. And... Do you count how many hours uh, no, sleep? No, uh, weirdly not. <laughs> but I haven't reached, I haven't reached my, my, my sporting pinnacle yeah. yet, Annabelle. I'm waiting for that moment. I may be, may be wasting a long time. Did you share any of your troubles? I mean, we've heard about the hypnotherapist. Obviously, you had a coach yeah. with you, your parents. I'm yeah. guessing you were in close contact with... Did you share your troubles with them about your fear of playing and no, your fear of performance? No, I didn't really talk to them about it. My coach was very, very understanding. And he he was an Australian guy called Owen Davidson, who was an amazing coach. He was Billie Jean King's um, mixed doubles partner to win the Grand Slam. And also a semi-finalist at Wimbledon. And he was a wonderful coach and wonderfully understanding of nerves and pressure. And always used to say people who watch and have never picked up a racket or a lot of people just don't understand what emotions you know, a player is going through. It's so much harder to play than it is to be an armchair tennis player from from a distance. Oh, I talked to John Newcomb and Owen set up a meeting with John Newcomb, who was the great champion uh, himself. And I had a wonderful chat with him at the US Open one year. You know, I'll always remember it. He sat me down and he just said, you know what, you you need to really think about why you're doing this and why you're playing tennis and you need to come, you need to take time out Go away and think about why you're actually doing this and only come back if you really, really want to play tennis. Did you properly reveal the depths of, yes, of your concerns to I him? I did to him, yes. And actually, Billie Jean King, who was always at the house when I was training, because obviously she knew Owen so well, and when I was training, I lived in Houston in his house from the age of about 15, actually. So she was always dropping by the house and uh, offering advice. And actually... I think she was very inspirational as well because she gets it. And, you know, I would tell her things or offer up stuff and she would understand it. But she was a very strong character who had an attitude or a personality that would grab fear with both hands and overcome it. I mean, we know the stories when she took on Bobby Riggs in that yeah. that great match. So, you know, anyone who's watched that film or the documentary about it will give you a sense of Billie Jean King's character. But that's why I think that with tennis, you know, your personality is such a big part of what you can put out on the court. I mean, sport is about personality and... Um, how you cope with with these difficult situations, isn't it? Yeah, and the projection of yourself matters so much, doesn't it? We've yeah. we hear a lot about sportsmen and women who kind of faking it to make it a little bit. Aren't oh, they? you can't fake it because I think the bluff or bravado you can read through that with body language, and you can study it. any any sports person is constantly reading almost like an animal does the the body language of your opponent down the other end, and you know when somebody is just faking it. 
and you know when they're not backing it up with true belief. Actually, in a weird way, tightness or tension displays itself in different ways, actually. So it can be that your legs stop moving and you tighten up and you can't run as fast or you just get really tight in your movement. But equally, your arm gets very tight and so you can't swing with freedom or power. You lose all power on your strokes. And of course, that in itself, if you're tight, allows the opponent to capitalise on that. Or you you pull in the boundaries. So if you're very tense, you'll go up the middle of the court and you won't go into the corners. Your serve will get shorter and more attackable. But then you'll get some people who are, when they're really tight, they hit the ball a million miles an hour. They can't control it and it's going in the back fence. They just whack it and hit it really hard, which I was the opposite of that. I would pull back on power. But you knew that that's just a bluff. So they might be trying to show you that they're not tight by hitting it hard, but you know they can't control the ball because they're just all over the place emotionally. That was their tell. And that's why the players, I think of like a Federer or a Sampras or a Murray actually, or, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, you can reel off all these names. When they really believe in themselves, their second serves are close to the line every time. They have power on their serves and second serves. They go for it because that's coming from a deep well of confidence that is not questioned by them or anyone. One of the many interesting things about this is that because you suffered with fear to some extent across a considerable period, we often refer to players of various different sports kind of getting the yips, if you like. Yana yeah. Novotna yeah. was a good example, wasn't she, in the Wimbledon final 93. Greg Norman famously blew that six-shot lead in the final round of the Masters yeah. in, in 96. There are countless examples of it, but they tend to be quite isolated incidents, yeah. but sustained fear mm. uh, over a period of time, perhaps not quite as common. Is that fair? Yeah, I think if you ask on the tour now... Everyone will know who are the players that get tight and it becomes a kind of a locker room chat. So it's like, oh, well, if you get that player, you know, if it gets tight in the school line, you know they're going to get nervous and tight because suddenly you get a reputation for it. And so that's not a good thing either. And so that's why it's so important early on in a player's career that they don't have those situations where they've got those memory banks or the rest of the tour know them because they've then been doubly weakened. So I think you're right. Sustained fear is awful. That's when it's time to question everything and think, right, how do you get out of this or how do you stop it or how how do we rethink this whole thing? Because, you know, there's no point in doing something if you have stage fright every time you walk out on the call. Absolutely. So what was it that pushed you over the edge to call it quits? Um, I think I just came to the conclusion that I had achieved certain things in the game and I was proud of what I'd achieved, but that this was not making me happy. And did I want to live my life where happiness depended on winning and losing a tennis match and living out of a suitcase the whole time, as much as it was wonderful to travel. And I went around the globe many, many times, you know, from a very early age. But I think I just was really questioning about life. I became very, very sort of deep thinking and philosophical and trying to question what life was all about. And and the answers were not coming from winning tennis matches for me. You know, I needed to get completely away from it just to try and find who I was and more about me and grow up a little bit and mature actually because all I'd ever done when I was from a very early age was get up and put tracksuit on and and hit tennis balls that's what I'd done for a very long time so it was weird how uh, when I first made that decision and I was quite relieved when I thought right that's it I'm I'm stopping and I didn't know if I'd ever come back but I thought right I was so relieved and it was like this great big weight had come off my shoulders 
And then I just attacked life with gusto. You know, I was uh, doing pantomimes and theatre shows, <laughs> ra- traveling around the country, and lots of entertainment shows. I did Treasure Hunt. I did this program called Interceptor. I was doing magic shows. I was just experiencing life. And I was also, you know, experiencing what normal people do, which was go out with friends and um, meet people and didn't get up in the morning and put a tracksuit on. I put normal clothes on, which seemed very odd to me because I'd never done that before. (laughs) You're still Um, counting your sleep hours, though. Yeah, I still count my sleep hours. But um, I think it was really important to do that, actually, and just grow up and mature and discover life outside that bubble that I'd been in. And it was weird how doing pantomimes, which was being on stage in front of 2,000-seater auditoriums. I was with Michael Barrymore in um, Bristol, which we I remember him selling out the theatre around the block, actually, and then it got extended. We did a three-month run there. Uh, I was playing, I think, Prince Charming at the time. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> yeah, slapping my thigh and um, whatever. But it was weird how doing those pantomimes and those shows actually made me overcome my fear of being in front of people and instead of using my racket, I was actually being me or playing this character. But it did so much for me in terms of my confidence. I did five years of pantomimes, but, you know, as I've said to you many times, Alice, I would so love to go back in time and have the the personality or the character or the knowledge and wisdom that I might have gained now to be able to sort of apply it back then. But of course, you can never do that. You yeah, can was, never, And you can never regret. No, I, re- regret's probably not that helpful, is it? But I was going to ask you if you had your, I guess, the more developed, mature mind that you mm. have now, do you think you could have done some serious damage at the top um, of the world game? Well, you like to think that you could have done, but of course you can never change things. But I would like to think that I would have had a healthier, more joyful approach to it and would have had a completely different attitude to it. I mean, we hear all of these people, athletes talking about processes, that it's not about the outcome, it's just about enjoying the process. And, you know, I do get that. And I think that would have been very helpful because if you're just trying to be a better tennis player or a better athlete at what you're doing and you're not worrying about the outcome I I think it was Eddie Jones that made that great statement didn't it if you're worrying about the outcome it's already too late and you know gosh how that rings in my head now because how many times did I walk on court worrying about the outcome and of course if you're you're already worrying about it it is too late because you're not focusing and putting your brain into action into something positive you're actually worrying rather than thinking positively Mm. and that time that you're spending on a court in between points was either spent negatively worrying about what's just happened of that backhand that you just missed or that second serve that was a bit short rather than thinking of that time in between going to the next point thinking right where am I aiming for this one what am I going to try and do in this point so it's a whole different mind shift so I would like to think that if I had had the tools psychologically to kind of think completely different way but I also think just maturity and I always say this I think tennis players don't really find out who they are until they've left the sport and then you see their characters completely develop and come out and change and different people extraordinary tell me you rediscovered your love of tennis though Oh, completely. I've never really fallen out of love with the actual sport. I never not watched it or always loved watching the sport. I think it's a very beautiful sport and the sort of grace and the artistic qualities that tennis brings to an audience, you know, where a part of that personality of that player is out there for you to see and the way that they move on the court is really beautiful, isn't it? So I've never really fallen out of love with it. And if anything, I've sort of fallen more in love with it. I mean, I've been in it for so many years and I 
absolutely throw myself into my work as a broadcaster and I almost can use all of those skills that I've learnt being away from it back in it again, if you know what I mean, because I've learnt so much about my experiences and then I see all these young players coming through and you identify with so much of what they're going through emotionally. I can appreciate all of the better qualities of the really high level players but also understand what the lower rank players are going through so you know I actually almost love love the sport more than I've ever loved it. Well that, that's mm. really lovely to hear and of course in, you offer invaluable insight on that level. Annabelle thank you so much. Oh it's a pleasure. So Felt generous very with your time. <laughs> well no not at all it's just it's amazing to hear somebody being so open so honest about a period of their lives which mm. really must have been quite painful at the time. It, it, yeah. It's been Fascinating, sad too in yeah. some measure, but thank you for being happy enough to tell oh, your you. story. Really <laughs> illuminating. And I think also, as you mentioned at the end there, you know, it'll be something of an inspiration, hopefully, to countless young athletes who are trying to push through now. It's important to share your emotions and find the necessary support. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Running on Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running on Emotion and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. Listener.